And we're going to continue our introduction into the parables of Matthew here in uh, Matthew chapter 13. I would encourage you to read ahead a little bit and uh, each week try to figure out where we're going. And, and uh, we're actually going to be getting into the parables per se next week, but uh, we're just going to continue our introduction uh, from last week. Today, remember, this is a kind of a, an important point in time in the book of Matthew. Um, he begins to talk about the kingdom of God, and we, uh, there's a little diagram there in your bulletin uh, notes about God's kingdom. We have God's universal kingdom from eternity past to eternity future. Then we have God's mediated kingdom, which begins when Christ first came. He was incarnate here on earth, and um, it goes to his second coming when he comes again. And the church age is sandwiched in that, into that uh, mediated kingdom. That mediatorial kingdom simply means that God was working through others to mediate, to carry out his kingdom here on earth. And it was uh, from Adam and Eve all through the Old Testament. We see that even with the nation of Israel and then even with the church. But being that we're talking about parables, I, want, I wanted to start off I uh, read this little story this past week out of one of my commentaries, and I thought it was an interesting little story, and it kind of puts things uh, in perspective for parables. And uh, you kind of have to understand what parables are, and we're going to be looking at that a little bit today. But I want to share this little story with you. It goes, In the mountainous regions of northern Italy, there was a small monastery that overlooked this small little subalpine village. And every day, one of the monks, early in the morning, he would make his way down this footpath um, to say Mass in this uh, village church. did it every morning. Well, one cold morning in the spring, he was walking along the path, and he saw this small little bird, just tiny little thing, on the side of the path. And it was shivering, and, and it was cold, and it was almost dead. And he knelt down and picked it up, and without hesitation, he examined it, and and for lack of any other alternative, he actually put it inside his little habit and uh, uh, next to his warm body. And he continued on his path down to the village church. Well, by the time he had reached the piazza in front of the church, the little bird had revived enough that it began to kind of wiggle around inside his little habit there and uh, began to do that in a more brisk manner. And so he thought, well, he couldn't bring it into the church with him because it would obviously be a distraction. And the bells began to chime, and he didn't know what to do. And he's looking around, and he's thinking, what, what am I going to do with this little bird? I can't just leave it out here and die. And uh, he stood there wondering what to do, and he noticed a great steaming cow pie providentially placed there by a dairy cow who was going out to pasture in the meadows nearby. And he thought, well, this is the bird's own chance only chance. So he took this little bird out from under his habit and he went over to the cow pie and he knelt down and he firmly but gently placed this little bird down into this warm gelatinous mixture (laughs) and he went into the church to say the mass. Well, the bird was revived even further and uh, so much so that he began to sing, began to chirp away rather happy little warm bird there sitting in the cow pie. Well, unbeknownst to the bird, an old fox was patrolling 
over the stone wall of the grave of the churchyard there. And he heard this little bird chirping away. So foxes, uh, he did what foxes do. He jumped over the, the uh, fence there into the piazza and quick as a flash snapped that little bird out of the cow pie and ate it. That's the story. You're saying, what in the world does that have to do? Well, there's three points to this story. <laughs> there's three points to this story. The first one, and I thought these were rather cute. The first one is this. The one who puts you into it is not necessarily your enemy. The second point of the story, the one who gets you out of it is not necessarily your friend. <laughs> and the third point of the little story was when you find yourself up to your beak in stuff. <laughs> it's best to keep your beak shut. <laughs> now, that's a little parable, a little story, just to kind of warm you up this morning. And it, and it kind of illumines, it reflects a little bit on what Jesus was doing in the gospel of Matthew. These parables, they're not jokes, but there's always a catch to a parable. It's a story, and it kind of, the, 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 the understanding of it springs upon you, kind of like a punchline in a joke. Um, and these aren't allegories that we're going to be looking at, but they're parables, and there's a difference, and we're going to be looking into that. But context is important to understanding any of these parables. You have to understand the context. Without the context, the parable of the little bird is just a little witty story about the ironies of life. But in fact, there was a president of a university that told that little, <laughs> that little story of that little bird to new professors. And the message they got from his little story was, if you want to survive in this university, you better keep your mouth shut. <laughs> See, this reminds us that parables have this kind of a disturbing edge sometimes. Uh, especially when there's confrontation in the air. And we know in Matthew 17, there was a lot of confrontation in the air. And so Jesus began to speak in parables. And uh, it's really, as we spoke on last week, it really speaks to the nature of this church age in which we live in. Because we, as we talked about last week a little bit, in the Old Testament, they didn't necessarily see this period of time. They saw the Messiah coming. They even saw, um, you know, at certain points in certain scriptures, point out in, in um, Isaiah and even in Zechariah and other places, that he was going to come and that uh, the Messiah was going to come. He was going to be rejected. He was actually going to be uh, crucified. He was going to be resurrected. And... They understood that, but they didn't understand, the, understood, understand exactly the timeline that was involved. They didn't understand the time be, between the rejection and the return of Christ. They just thought it was one solid, fluid motion. They didn't know this thing called the church, the mystery, was going to be in between. And so that's what we have here in Matthew 13, a description of this time where it's, it's not described anywhere else up to this point. Even in the Old Testament, they didn't have a clue about the church and, and all this stuff that was going to go, be going on with the church. And so we said last week that Christ came as king and with his kingdom and they rejected 
the king and the kingdom. And so the obvious question is, well, what happens to the kingdom now? Well, the kingdom has to be postponed. And we understand that in prophecy that it's going to be postponed until his second coming. And so when Christ comes back a second time at, after the tribulation to start the millennium, his thousand-year rule and reign on earth, that will be uh, that, that, that time period where he is going to bring his kingdom here on earth. It's really going to happen. But what happens in the meantime? Well, what happens is the church age. And they didn't have a clue what was happening in the church age. Nowhere else in Scripture was it really illumined upon. And so he had to use parables to talk about the time that we're living in right now. That's why it's so important that we understand what's going on in Matthew 13. Jesus Christ, he comes, he's seen as the king. John the Baptist introduces him as the king. People follow him as the king, but then ultimately we've seen that ultimately it leads to his rejection. And this age that we're talking about right here, the church age, begins at Pentecost and it ends at the rapture. And so we're going to see here what happens during this time when Christ is kind of in this in-between, in-between time uh, how he's going to deal with things. Well, last week we looked at the first point was the place. And we saw that in verse 1 it says of Matthew 13, On the same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea. And we use that as an illustration of him actually leaving his input, uh, his giving information to Israel over to the Gentiles. Some people believe that, that that's kind of an illustration of that. He was always teaching in the synagogues and to the religious leaders up to this point. We're going to see a marked difference now in the ministry of Christ. He's going to move out of those places, out of the religious places, and he's going to go out on the streets and out on the sea, and, and he's going to speak to the multitudes because... The religious group rejected him. And so he begins to uh, formulate this, this, uh, this, the, the way he's going to do it, and that's our first point today, the plan. He says in verse 3, it says there, he spoke many things to them. And how did it say he spoke to them? In what? Parables. He spoke to them in Parables. Um, The plan of the Lord was to use parables to speak to these people. And the very important reason was in his mind, and we're going to get to that under the point of the purpose. Why did he do this? But when you think of a a parable, okay, uh, it says in verse 34 of uh, chapter 13, that, and these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. And look at what it says. And without parables, he did not speak to them. So he only spoke to them in parables. That was it. He didn't even give them the explanation of the parables, the multitudes. He just gave them this little riddle. And then, you know, he shared the other information with his disciples. But... There's other parables in the scriptures and in the, the different gospels and, and things like that. And, and they're kind of a, some of them are in Luke, some of them are in Matthew. But we have to understand when he was speaking to the multitudes, he only spoke in parables to them. And it says that he spoke many things to them. It may be that he even spoke other parables that aren't recorded in scripture. We don't know. There's a lot of things that Jesus did and said that aren't recorded in scripture but we're not given any information on them, so we can't really even comment on that. So what's a parable? When it comes to a parable, what is it? 
It means para, to come alongside. It means to lay something alongside of something else. To place something alongside something else so that you can draw a comparison between the two. That's basically what it came to mean. A comparison or an illustration. So you have a spiritual truth, something that's not concrete, and Jesus wants to get that across to you in a teaching, so he grabs something that is concrete, something that you would understand, and he uses that to illustrate that spiritual truth. You have a spiritual truth that may be heard, that may be hard to understand, basically, and you lay this parable alongside of it, and it's a physical, earthly story that kind of gives you the understanding of the spiritual truth. It's basically an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, meaning you might say. Um, and sometimes you have to use pictures, you have to use images. Any good teacher does that. So, because people's minds remember the images, and that's what Jesus was doing here. He uses things like a field, he uses grain, he uses birds, he uses the road, he uses thorns, the sun, wheat, tares, mustard seeds. If you read through Matthew 13, you see all these things used. A tree, leaven, treasure, pearl. talks about a net, he talks about a, a householder. All those things were very common terms. These weren't abstract terms to them. To us, it may be because we're not really an agrarian society anymore. But those who live in an agrarian society and in the agricultural lifestyle, they would understand this perfectly. And this is probably one of the most prominent methods that the Lord used in teaching. Um, He taught a lot of times with parables. He always used life situations that could relate to the people. Um, In Matthew 13 is the first time we have Technically, a parable being used in the New Testament. It's the first time we run across a parable. Now, Jesus did a lot of teaching before Matthew 13, and we've gone over some of that teachings. And you say, well, weren't they parables? No, they were more analogies. They were were different stories. They were were different things. They weren't parables, per se. For example, in in chapter 5 of Matthew, he said that men were to be in the world like salt and light. Remember that? That's an analogy. That's not <clears throat> a parable. In, Ma- in chapter 6, he talked about the kingdom of God, and he talked about how important it was to perceive these, the birds and the lilies of the field in relationship to how you are saw, sought by God himself. In chapter 7, he talked about a wise builder, remember, and a foolish builder. Well, that's just an illustration. He talked about a building structure. In chapter 9, he talked about garments, remember, putting wine and new wineskins, old wineskins, all that. And they're, they're illustrations of spiritual truth, but they're not parables, technically. Let me tell you why parables are effective in, in teaching, why Jesus used parables. First of all, it's because they make truth concrete. They actually make truth concrete. Um, they put pictures to a spiritual truth they make something abstract and you can you can understand a little better when you see a picture of it Uh, we may not understand the concept of going out and spreading the gospel but we definitely understand the concept of going out and throwing seed in a field anybody understands that well he relates that to that Um, they make truth the objective truth and they make it concrete secondly 
they make it portable. In other words, you can, once you remember something with a picture attached to it, people use this, they use this in conferences and in, in uh, corporate settings to remember people's names. You know, you, you, you attach a, a picture to somebody's name and it makes, you, it makes it easier to remember those people. When you think of that picture, you just you know, want, want to remember their name, you just think of that picture of that person, whatever it might be that's, that's you know, assimilated with them. And so it makes truth portable. You can carry that wherever you want. It also makes it interesting. Rather than sit down and kind of just reduce it from some dull uh, thought or something, when you bring it into an illustration and a parable, it just kind of comes alive. And then also it makes it personally discoverable, truth. In other words, as the story goes, you begin to kind of internalize the story and you begin to put yourself in the story and pretty soon you're totally understanding the truth that you're being taught because you're relating to the story. And so that's his plan. That's why he used parables because they were effective tools in teaching but they were always a earthly story kind of relating to a heavenly truth. Now we want to go through these parables just in a brief overview just to give you an idea where we're going to be going in the coming weeks. And uh, the first parable occurs in, in verses 5, 4 and 5, basically, through 23 in Matthew 13. It's a parable about the sower and the seed. And he went into the fields, it says, and he sowed the seed. And this is basically depicting the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. And some people will initially reject it. That's the stony ground. Some people will initially receive it. Uh, but... The thorns in the sun will cause them to fall away. Some people will initially receive it and will ultimately bring forth fruit. And so you have to understand, well, what's the Lord saying here? He's simply saying this. See, a parable always, you don't want to get caught up in all the minutia of a parable because a parable is just there to teach one truth. You don't go through and, and tear apart a parable and, oh, well, this must mean this and this must mean that. And that. No, it's overall, you put it all together. And what's he saying in that, that first parable? Simply that, you know what, the gospel will be preached throughout the entire world. Some are going to hear it and reject it. Some are going to accept it for a while and fall away. And some are going to believe it, and they're going to bring forth fruit. It's not hard. But that's what's going to happen during the church age, if you think about it. It's a very simple principle. What he's saying is we're never going to win the whole world. As hard as we may try, we're not going to win the whole world. But that doesn't mean you stop sowing, Right? Every seed you sow isn't going to bear fruit. And a lot of people don't even understand that, I think, today. Their concept is, we've got to win the world for Christ. Well, that's not going to happen. Just focus on who's around you. Just share the message of the gospel. And let God take care of the rest. That's what we're called to do. Uh, the second parable in verses 24 to 30 is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Some of these are longer parables, some of them are short. And it basically talks about a field and wheat sown in the field. And while the workers are sleeping, the enemy comes and puts other seeds, seeds of weeds that look exactly like the wheat. And they crowd the wheat and they ruin the crop. But you can't pull them out because you can't tell them from the wheat is the story. So you have to let them alone until they harvest What's the Lord saying about this period of time? He's saying basically during the church age, you know what? You're going to have true believers and you're going to have false believers. And it's hard to tell sometimes who's who. There's going to be people who identify with Christ on the outside, but they don't know Christ on the inside. 
People are going to say that they belong to Christ. People are, are moving along with the rest who are genuine. But those, some of those people will be false. They'll be false converts. They'll be false believers. And ultimately, God will burn the true and burn the false. What's the principle? We will never purge the church. As hard as we try to keep the church pure, it's impossible. Only God can do that one day. And so that true and false existing side by side is a very important concept. The third parable is given in 31 and 32. And it's a parable about a mustard seed, which is one of the smallest seeds. And it was planted into the ground. It says it bloomed and turned into a huge tree so big that birds could come and nest in it. Well, what that means is basically, you know, the, the truth is that the kingdom will begin small, but it will become worldwide. And we see that with Christianity, don't we? Think about it. From a couple fishermen, okay, who were always mending their nets. They, they couldn't even fish right sometimes. I mean, they were just always bickering. They were always doing things. You know, these guys weren't the, the cream of the crop. And yet, from those individuals, we're sitting here today thousands of years later in a place called a church. <laughs> it's amazing. And that's what God said would happen. Fourth parable is in, in verse uh, 34 to 33 to 34. It likens the kingdom to leaven, which is used in making bread. It makes it rise. The leaven speaks of influence primarily from the world. And when the people of Israel were told to leave Egypt, they were told to only have, what, unleavened bread. Because when you leaven bread, you take a uh, lump from a, a past loaf, basically, and you pull it out and you put it next to the batch, and that leavens the batch is how they did that. You pull out a lump of that for the next batch. And so every loaf is leavened by the prior loaf. And when God said, you're going out of Egypt, he said, I don't want you to take any lump from Egypt. I don't want you to have anything to deal with Egypt. Just like when he calls us out of the world, he says, don't go back. Don't allow the world to influence you. And that parable speaks of the influence of the world, which we're called to be set apart. What's he saying? He's saying the kingdom is like leaven. There will be a leavening during the church age that there will be an evil influence in the church. We see this today. And we're never able to completely divorce ourselves from the worldly influence around us. And therefore, the church, unfortunately, compromises with the world. Jesus said it's going to be that way. In verse 44, we find the next parable of the treasure hidden in a field. And there's a man working in the field, and he stumbles across this treasure, and he buys the field because he's an honest man. He doesn't just steal the treasure. He's an honest man. So he buys the field, and he makes a deal, and he buys the whole field, and he gets the treasure that's in it. Treasures relating to our salvation. Treasure is redemption. And when it's found, the man does all he can. He sells everything he owns in order to get that treasure. See, there's going to be people in this kingdom period who will give up everything to get the treasure. And the interesting point about this parable is that the man wasn't looking for the treasure. You notice that? He wasn't looking for the treasure. It was just in the routine of his work on a daily Daily life, he's just gone through life, and he was surprised by the reality of this treasure. It's, it relates to salvation. There are a lot of people who come to know Christ during this period of time, 
who will almost stumble upon it by accident because of the grace of God. The parable of the next verse, 45, is a parable of a man with a desire to find a pearl. And he seeks and he seeks and he seeks and he finds the pearl. And finally, he finds the one that he wants. The parable goes on. He sells everything and he buys it. Well, just like the last parable, the man is willing to pay the same price, everything, for this great pearl that he found. But the difference is that this man is actually seeking it. See? He's actually seeking for the pearl. And this tells us that during this kingdom time, there's going to be people in the kingdom who spend a great deal and a great amount of time seeking the truth, and finally they'll find it. Some people will come to Christ without ever seeking. As C.S. Lewis once put it, surprised by joy. And then other people will spend a long time kind of weighing it out and studying it out, endeavoring to find the truth. And then the last parable in verse 47 is that of a net. Everything is pulled into the net and the good separated from the bad. And that's also a picture at the end of the church age, the end of the mystery of the kingdom when Jesus pulls it all kind of together and sorts out the true from the false. Now, that's an insight into the time in which we find ourselves right now. And that's why I said this this section of Scripture is so important for us to understand. That's just an overview. We're going to look at each of those parables in the coming weeks and see exactly what they mean. That's just just a a kind of an overview of the the whole whole chapter. But it's important to put it in the context in which we find it. So the Lord teaches us, all of us, using these parables. Now look back at verse um, 3. The Lord teaches all of this in parables. Now the parables, they explain things, and parables help us to understand things. The parables make things clear. But listen to this. Only when they're explained. (laughs) A parable has to have an explanation. An unexplained parable is nothing but an impossible riddle. If I just read that story to you, and I didn't give the little three points afterwards, you would just be like, that's just a weird way to start off a message. You know, that would just be weird. It was kind of weird anyway. But, but I gave you the meaning of the little story. If I just didn't, if I left the meaning out, you'd be thinking, well, you'd still be thinking about it. What, what is he talking? Is he losing his mind? What's he talking about up there? See, an unexplained parable is an impossible riddle. It's something that can't be understood. That's why Jesus had to explain everything. You notice that? Even to his disciples. In Mark 4.10, it says, it's the same occasion here, when he was alone, in Mark 4.10, it says, that they were about him with the twelve, and he asked of him the parable, asked of him the parable, and he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto those that are outside, all these things are done in parables. So we see his plan. His plan was to speak in parables, and he made it pretty uh, clear. Well, what was his purpose? Why would he do this? I mean, it seems like he's almost playing a game with people's minds. Why would he do this? Well, that takes us down to verse 10. 
The disciples came and they asked him in verse 10, they said, why do you speak to them in parables? And that's a good question. Probably, I mean, if you had a bunch of people following you and you're looking to set up the kingdom of God here on earth, and that's what his disciples at this point probably figured he was going to do. And all these people are going to be under your teaching, but then you start telling them little riddles that they're just going to get frustrated with and they're not going to understand. Why would you do that? That wouldn't make any sense. Why do you just give them these parables without the explanation is what they wanted to know. And he answered them and he said, because it's to you to know the mystery of this kingdom. See, parables, the purpose of parables is twofold. It's to reveal spiritual truth, but it's also to conceal spiritual truth. See, to some, they make the truth clear. To others, they make it even more unclear. And Jesus says, it's for you to know the mystery, speaking to his disciples. And when he said that word, they, they understood exactly what he was talking about. Now, we think a mystery is kind of like a novel or something, you know, ooh, Agatha Christie, something like that, you know, that we, we enjoy reading, whodunit kind of a story. Well, in the Greek culture, the mysteries were sacred secrets that could only be known by the upper level of the religionists. That's how they viewed a mystery. There were truths only for the initiated, you might say. And see, that's where Jesus comes along and he, he kind of says, okay, I'm going to share with them in, in parables. And so his disciples are going, why would you do that? I'm going to show you the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The secrets never revealed to anybody before. You're going to find out what they are. That's what he's telling his disciples. But they're only given to you to know. I'm going to explain these parables to you. I'm not going to explain them to the multitude. And the reason I'm not going to explain them to the multitude is because they don't accept the king. They don't accept the king. They don't accept the kingdom. So the Lord is kind of unfolding the parables, and yet he's still concealing the parables to certain people. Look at verse 12. Matthew 13, it says, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. It's a great statement. What's he saying here? He's saying, whoever has a sense of having received from God that which comes to those who believe, you're going to understand it. You're going to put it together. Whoever is regenerate, whoever is saved, whoever is a follower of the king, whoever identifies with Christ is what he's saying. There's going to be illumination. There's going to be enlightenment. So you can understand the mystery that I'm telling you. To the one who accepts the simplicity of the king and the kingdom, God will begin to reveal even more truth to him. That's what he says. To those who live up to the light of Christ, he will give more light and more light and more light. But at the end of the verse it says, but whoever does not... Whoever is not regenerate, whoever doesn't accept Christ as king and his kingdom, whoever does not believe God, what's it say? From him shall be taken even what he has. Well, there may be a little bit of light dawning as he was being led to that point. Certainly that was true if you think of Israel. 
The king had come, he had taught, he preached, he had done miracle after miracle after miracle. Some kind of understood who he was. They had some understanding of what he could do. They had some glimpses and foretastes of the kingdom just by what he did amongst them. They had seen the signs of the Spirit of God. They had seen the wonders. The Bible tells us that. They had some of that. But when they said no to the king, what he's saying is even what they had was lost. None of it made any more sense. And they began to kind of descend into the darkness. And that's true today, even in our own society, if you stop and think about it. No group of people in our society are as lost in terms of their disorientation from their religion as the Jewish people. They're just, they're just lost. They have all the promises. They have all the, the gifts of God, the fathers, the adoptions, all that stuff that Romans 9 talks about. Paul says, you have everything. But they rejected the king, and they rejected the kingdom. And therefore, the light went out. And even what they had, they began to lose meaning of. You talk to a, a modern-day Jews today, that's why Judaism has really moved from orthodoxy to what's called conservative Judaism. It's a new reformed Judaism, where they don't even believe the Bible to be the word of God anymore. It's amazing. And here, they're supposed to be the keepers of God's word and give it out to the rest of the world. And yet today, when you talk to the average Jew, they're very liberal in their theology. If you live up to the light which Christ gives you, when he reveals truth, when he reveals light to you, then more light will come. But if you refuse that light, the Bible says that you'll have more darkness than you ever even dreamed of. And see, the parables of, these, of Jesus are doing just that. They're revealing truth to his disciples while still holding back truth from those who rejected him. Verse 13, he says then, Therefore I will speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Because they won't hear anything with understanding, they won't see why would I just tell them the truth? I'm going to speak to them in parables because they've already rejected the truth. What happens is a willful rejection. And what that does is it becomes a, almost a, a judicial rejection. Man says no, and then God says, okay, you want it that way? Fine. I'll say no as well. And God confirms men in their own stubbornness. And so for them, the parables become interesting stories. And they really don't know what the point is. They're just riddles. That's why you talk to people and they say, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Oh, he was a great teacher. He was a moral man. He was, you know, they'll go all day long on that. But you said, you believe he's the only way to heaven. Oh, no, I, I believe God is a big God. He's a loving God. I'm sure there's other ways to heaven besides Christ. And they start down that path. Because they've rejected Christ. they rejected Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15. It's an amazing statement here. So he speaks to them in riddle or parables because they don't understand. And then he says in verse 14, And 
in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have what? Grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So that I should heal them. Amazing. That's out of Isaiah chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. Prophecy that was written in the Old Testament. He basically is a profound time of judgment on Israel. And so here we see that kind of revisited here. Jesus comes. He came first. His words were very clear. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He said he was the king. He proved he was the king. He preached the kingdom message over and over and over again. And then he says here, now, here, here, here it is how it is in my kingdom. Here's how it's going to be. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. He gave them all they needed to know about the kingdom up to this point. And what they do? Like a little kid, they put their fingers in the ear and they said, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't want to hear anymore. They refused him. They rejected him. So when they wouldn't listen to clear words, when they wouldn't observe the miracles he did, you remember back in Matthew 5 and 7, he said, he would say that the kingdom of heaven is like, remember that? And then he'd use an analogy of salt or light or birds or lilies or the field, whatever. He would always explain its meaning. Therefore, he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It was always very clear what he meant. And then when they hardened their hearts and they began to blaspheme him, and then they began to say that he was not from God, but he was from Satan. He said, all right, fine. Now I'm going to talk to you in riddles, and you're not even going to have a clue what I'm talking about. Turn over, this is interesting, by the way, turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. Because remember, this was a, a prophecy from Isaiah. It's being fulfilled. 1 Corinthians 14, look at verse 21. No, actually, we'll start in verse 20. Now, this is talking about the controversy <laughs> that's even in our churches today about tongues. Okay, charismatic tongues and all this stuff. Well, look at what he says in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however, in malice be babes, but an understanding be mature. And then he says this, in the law it is written, in the law it is written, this is out of Isaiah 28, look at what it says, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that, they will not, what? Hear me, says the Lord. And then he says, therefore, tongues are for a sign Look at what it says. Not those who believe. Right? But to unbelievers. P- 
People always ask, what are, what are tongues for? Well, it says that they're for a sign. Well, who are they a sign for? They're not for those who believe. They're a sign for those who believe not. Where was tongues primarily used? Well, in the New Testament, we see tongues primarily being used on the day of Pentecost in the face of Israel. Why? Clearly, they wouldn't listen when he spoke to them clearly in their own language. So he judged them by speaking in riddles. They wouldn't listen and seek the truth. So he spoke to them in a language they didn't even know. There's kind of a progression here in the judgment. Judge Tongues are a sign of judgment upon Israel, beloved. That's what tongues are. God is now talking, so you can't even understand the language anymore. It's just, it's just kind of an interesting side note there. But back in, in Matthew 13, his plan was to use parables. The purpose was so that some could see and some could not. And then in verse, we've seen how he conceals it. Look at in verse 16 of Matthew 13. But blessed are your eyes, for they what? For they see and your ears, what? Hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. I mean, that's just, that's, that's great. Jesus explained them, and we have the New Testament with us, and so we're part of that group that he's saying, here, you're, you're going to be able to understand this because I'm going to explain them to you. In Mark 4.34, about the same incident here that Jesus was speaking of, he says this, he expounded all things to them. In other words, he explained all these things to his disciples. And over in verse 52 of Matthew 13, it says, Then he said to them, Therefore every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out this treasure, things new and old. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. 51 says, I'm sorry, I read the wrong one. 51 says, Jesus said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, what? Yes, we understand them. Why? Because they're followers of the king. They weren't smarter than the other people. They just possessed that illuminating presence of Christ in their life. They were part of his ministry. At the end of Luke's gospel in verse 45, after the road to Emmaus, it says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Remember that? We went over that over the Easter season. See, even though you're regenerate, you would still not understand Scripture if it weren't for the illuminating work of the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's his job. Psalm 119.18 says, Open the, my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. See, that's, that's what we're called to do when we read the Bible. You don't just pick the Bible up and start reading it like a you know, whodunit novel. 
You ask God, God, help me to understand what I'm reading. Put it in its context. Put it in perspective. Don't help me to take things out of context. That's how you get in trouble. Back to Matthew 13. So it says, you're going to hear, and then in verse 17, it says that many of the prophets longed to look into this, but they, they couldn't. Um, Hebrews 11 says that they were not perfected without us. Peter says that they were looking into their own prophecies and searching what person and, and what time these things would come to pass. They were trying to put it together and they just couldn't. Even the prophets of old couldn't. They didn't get to see what we see now. That's why when we come to this communion table, they didn't understand that. They didn't see this. The Holy Spirit will help us as we discern these things together. doesn't mean you don't study. You have to study. But God will take that, that studying and apply it to you in a very real way. I mean, today we have the Word of God. Jesus isn't here to explain it personally, physically with us. That's why he left us the Spirit, so we can deal with that. So you have the place, the plan, the purpose, and then last, the promise. We see the promise here in verse 35. The king was offered, and the kingdom was offered, and they rejected it. You might say, well, doesn't this foul up God's plan? Some of you brought this up last week. Some of you said, well, you, you made a comment last week that if when Christ came with the king as the king and the kingdom, if he came and they accepted it, what would happen? Well, he would have established his kingdom here on earth. That's what would have happened. But they didn't accept it. And he knew they wouldn't accept it. That's like, in a way, it's like saying, well, if that person in hell would have repented, what would have happened to him? If they would have accepted Christ, what would have happened to him? Well, they would have been in heaven, right? But it didn't pan out that way because they rejected Christ. Same thing. But here, it's not that God is, you know, God is not below us. We serve a sovereign God. And you wonder, wow, when they rejected Christ the first time in his kingdom, did that, did that send God scurrying back to heaven going, oh no, what do I do now? I mean, some people have that view of God. When Eve ate of the fruit, and Adam ate of the fruit in the garden, God didn't know what he was going to do. He's fit to be tied. Oh, what do I do now? I put you down there in that perfect place and you messed everything up. So he went back to heaven and he looked around. Jesus, you're my plan. Okay, you need to go down there. Here's what you're going to do. No. The Bible says that's not how it unfolds. Remember, our God's kingdom goes from where? Eternity past, right? To eternity future. And God transcends time. We don't understand that. But he trans in other words, there's no tomorrow with God. There's no yesterday with God. He sees everything right now. That's just amazing. If you sit around and you think about that for a while. I mean, think about your life if you had no time. If you, if you were just over time, there was no tomorrow, there was no yesterday, there, it just all happened right away. You're sitting there going, man, if everything happened right away, I'd, just, I'd lose it. Well, yeah, you probably would. That's why God spread it out for us, because we're not God. But the promise that he gives here, 
Is God up in heaven making alterations to his plans because they messed it up? Is he adjusting it, saying, well, I sent the king, and if they accepted the king, then, you know, but they didn't, so now I've got to come up with another plan. Plan B. Now, the fact that he had to judge these people for their unbelief and the kingdom had to be postponed and the mystery age had to be dropped in with the church here and all that was that sort of an additional thing tacked on at the last minute. Well, look at verse 35. 34, actually, of Matthew 13. It says, In other parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is, is like leaven, and the woman took and hid in three measures of the meal till it was all leavened. And then verse 34, sorry. And these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them. Why? Verse 35. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying... I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. See, when we go through the actual parables of Matthew 13, starting next week or the week after, depending if we do something for Mother's Day or not, I'm not, I'm not sure yet. But when we get into the parables, we're actually looking into things that had never been revealed in, in this time. When Christ actually wrote them, I mean, now we understand, but, but back then he was shedding brand new light to these people. God didn't adjust before the foundation of the world. He knew they would reject. He knew that he'd have to put that secret mystery, the church age period, in there. And what does that say about God. His promises are true. That he does everything on his schedule. God isn't making alterations as he goes. The Bible clearly says that we serve a sovereign God. Everything is on schedule. Now, in Matthew 13, that's just a little bit to kind of whet your appetite. There are going to be some great, profound truths that we learn together as we go through these parables one by one. But this morning, just to summarize what we've said, truth is only available to people who believe and are taught by God. Truth is not relevant, like the world tells you. There's not more than one truth. No, truth comes from God. The other side of that is the second truth. Rejection of Jesus Christ means the decreasing darkness of unbelief. If you reject Christ, if you reject him as king, as Lord, it's only going to get worse. It doesn't ever get better. You don't say, stay in the same spot. Some people, you talk to them and you share Christ with them, and, well, I'm, I'm taken under consideration. And you talk to them ten years later, well, I'm still taking it under consideration. No, they're, they're not in the same place. Either you grow fonder of Christ or you grow harder in your heart toward Christ. You don't stay neutral. It just doesn't happen that way. And the third point that I want you to see is that God's plan is on schedule. I don't know about you, but that, that truly makes this all worthwhile to realize that, you know what, we're part of something, beloved, called the church, that God knows exactly what's going on. 
He knows exactly when so-and-so will be saved. He knows exactly when so-and-so will go home to be with the Lord. He knows exactly. It's all on his schedule. It's not up to us. And I don't know about you, but that, that makes me be able to sleep at night. Think of, if I stood up here and told you, you know what? It's up to you to save people. You have to go out there and you have to preach the message of the gospel. And if people don't get saved and they go to hell, it's your fault. There's churches that teach that. My Bible doesn't show me that. As the song said this morning, as we, we sang it, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's always God that draws us to himself. Are we to go out and share the gospel with the world? Most definitely. And we should do it wholeheartedly, and we should do it unashamedly, and we should do it boldly. But as we do it, don't let us get discouraged. Because that would be like a sower going out in a, in a field and throwing seed, and then looking, I don't see anything growing. I guess I'm not going to throw any more seed. I'll just go home. No, the sower doesn't do that. He throws seed everywhere in the field. Because you know that some of those seeds will take root and some of those seeds will bear fruit. And that's what we, we need to understand when we kind of get into these, these parables. And hopefully the Lord will open up our hearts to that end. Let's close this portion of our service with a word of prayer and then we'll have our communion time. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can gather here as believers in this place, in this building. Lord, we, we thank you for this provision that you've so graciously given to us. And Lord, I, I pray that we would never uh, forget the kindness of your hand, the graciousness of your hand, the forgiveness that has been granted to us, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and the work that he's accomplished on Calvary. Lord, it was at the end of that time when he gave up his life and he breathed his last and he said, it is finished. Lord, I thank you so much that those words can mean different things to different people. I'm sure there were people standing there at the cross that said, well, yep, he's dead now. It's all over. Everybody go home. What he was saying was his work is finished. The sacrifice is over. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor outside of the work of Christ. And as hard as we toil and as much as we want to please God and we try to do good works, all those things, if they're outside of Christ, the Bible says they're but filthy rags. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded that it's the work of Christ on Calvary that secures our salvation. And it's for that we should be grateful. It's for that we should be thankful. It's for that that we should just lift up our hands in praise to Him. Because it's not based upon us. It's based upon His sovereign will in our lives. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, who has yet to experience the grace of God through the forgiveness that Christ offers, Lord, I pray that it's, they would understand it's never too late for them to cry out to God, Dear God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to trust Christ for my salvation. 
I want to turn away from my sins. I want to turn to you through your son, Jesus Christ. I want you to make me the kind of person that you desire me to be. I yield control of my life over to you. That's a prayer that he will answer. He will save you from your sin. And then you can partake of the communion time together and it will have a brand new meaning as we eat the cracker and we drink the blood. We drink the juice that represents the blood of Christ. And Father, we just pray that you would prepare our heart for this time of the service. And Father, that we would just begin to ponder maybe some things that we are thankful for, some things that you've graciously blessed us with. And Lord, that at the appropriate time, maybe we could just share those with the rest of the body in a, in a spirit of prayer. And uh, Father, we just uh, pray that you prepare our hearts for that. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.